Today I'm walking through the entirety of Daniel 11. I get paid by the verse and we have 45 of them today. So I hope you came to work because it's time to roll up your sleeves. I have a lot to cover, not a lot of time to cover it. So basically what I'm saying is this is just another normal Sunday for us. If you're taking notes, prepare for carpal tunnel. Chuck Swindoll said Daniel 11 is the most remarkable chapter in the entire Bible. John Calvin wrote 100 pages on chapter 11 alone. So there's a lot of study done in this chapter, but not a lot of preaching from it. The great Lutheran commentator H.C. Lepold, after he had written pages and pages and pages of commentary on this chapter, said this, How could anyone preach from this? This chapter belongs in the classroom, not in the pulpit. <laughs> I read that and I said, thank you, H.C. I appreciate, appreciate the vote of confidence. Daniel 11 may be more challenging than a Pauline letter for sure, but it still should be proclaimed. And why such a neglect of Daniel 11? Well, because it reads like a lengthy, dull history. Uh, confusing dates and confusing people that most do not care to memorize. It covers hundreds of years of human history. From verse 2 to verse 20, it covers 355 years. From verse 21 to 35, it covers 12 years. That's a lot of history. Henry Ford said history is more or less bunk. And what he meant by that is that a preoccupation with history gets in the way of living life now. In other words, history is irrelevant. It has no conceivable use for us. Joseph Heller describes history as a trash bag of random coincidences torn open to a wind. So he believed stuff happened with no particular pattern or significance. In other words, history has no lessons to teach. Now most of us do not have philosophical reasons like these why we do not like history. We simply do not like history because it's boring. One of the characters in Jane Austen's novel, Northanger Abbey, says it best, and I quote, History? Real solemn history? I cannot be interested in. I read it a little as a duty, but it tells me nothing that does not either vex or weary me. The quarrels of popes and kings with wars and pestilences on every page, it is very tiresome. End quote. Daniel 11 seems at first reading to be that exact kind of dull history. Yet, you desperately need this history. Today I want to give you two reasons why. The first one is this. You need to comprehend that history is not random or meaningless. The history that we are living right now, this COVID season, the history that we are living right now is frightening to some of you. And in a day filled with bad news, you need some good news. In a day filled with uncertainty, you need some certainty. And Daniel 11 is exactly what you need. One of the things you can't stop doing is opening the Bible and listening to God. In verse 1 of our text, an angel is speaking to Daniel. And Daniel's in the 6th century B.C. hearing detailed events that cover the next few centuries. And, and remember as we look at these verses that prophecy is not merely telling history beforehand. 
It's not just mere recounting of events ahead of time. It's God telling you how He wants you to think about these events. Now, we know from secular history what we are about to read regarding the battle of Persia and Greece happened just like God said it would. Let's read about this battle in verse 2. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Now let's stop reading there. There's more than four kings in Persia, but the angel picks out three who ruled just before the fourth. And the fourth, we know from history, was named Xerxes. But he also had another name. His other name was Ahasuerus. He is the king mentioned in the book of Esther. So how, how did God use... Let's just think about the Persian Empire as a whole. How did God use the Persian Empire for his purposes? Well, when the Persians defeated the Babylonians, they released all of their POWs to travel back to their motherland. Just as God had predicted his people would go back into his land. Here, Greece eventually defeats Persia, and Persia crumbles. She did her job. To the dustbin of history she goes. God supported and protected her for a time to accomplish his chosen purpose, but that purpose has been fulfilled. Now, there's a 150-year gap between verses 2 and 3. In that time, the Greek empire is expanding In our day, we have fixed boundaries and nation states. In their days, the borders flexed with each victory. Watch the border flex in verse 3. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. We know from history this mighty king is Alexander the Great. He was raised to be a warrior king. He conquered the known world by age 26. This is a man who stands out in history as perhaps the most remarkable military leader ever. Julius Caesar, Napoleon, Ulysses S. Grant, Winston Churchill, they all pale in comparison to this man. They they called him Lord of Asia. Now remember, this prediction history is written before this man was even born. I mean, this is a couple of hundred years before Alexander the Great was Alexander the Baby. Notice as he's growing into his his kingdom here, verse 4. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity. In other words, it won't go to his children. Alexander could not even secure what every father desires, namely, that his children inherit his achievements. His two sons were assassinated. The angel was exactly right. It would not pass to his boys. When Alexander died, the Greek kingdom was divided, the four winds of the earth, divided among four of his generals. Now let's step back from this empire for a moment and consider this question. How did God use Alexander the Great and the Greek empire for his purposes? Well, Alexander gave the world a one-world language. A message could be given in that one language and reach the entire world. It was a medium for the gospel. Alexander served God's plan and purposes and then off he goes. 
Nations and dictators come and go. They live and die. They win and lose. And our great God in heaven watches it all and laughs. It's not human history after all. It's God's history. Break up the word history. His story. So that means your history is really, the history you're living right now, your history is really God's history. Now, you can turn on CNN and Fox any day, any time of the day or or night, and you can find out about news events. You can check Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and be bombarded with information. Someone said, we receive more individual items of information in a week than a person in the 18th century would receive in their lifetime. Now, now the problem with that is that we are preoccupied with the trivial. A lot of this information isn't that significant in the grand scheme of things. And we, more than ever, need to see history from God's perspective. And that's exactly what Daniel is pointing us to in the first four verses. Robert Louis Stevenson wrote a short story, and I, I think it helps us navigate our current history. The story goes like this. There was a, a ship and a violent stormy sea. The ship was driven against the rocks, and it seemed at any moment it might be dashed to pieces. The passengers in the ship were huddled together in terror, facing inevitable death. And in the agony of that moment, one of the men said, I'm I'm going, I'm going up to see the pilot. And he made his way up, up, and finally came into the pilot's cockpit, and there he found the pilot chained to his post with his hands on the wheel, guiding little by little, turning little by little away from the rocks and out into the deep of an open sea. Robert Louis Stevenson wrote that when the pilot saw the passenger and looked at his terror-stricken face, that the pilot looked at him and smiled. The man turned around, said Stevenson, went back to the deck below and shouted, All is well! All is well! I saw the pilot's face. Dear friends, I hope you know what my job is. It is not to make you laugh. I am here to show you the face of God in the scriptures. Because then and only then will you be sustained when you see the quarrels of popes and kings with wars and pestilences on every page of your life. The second truth is this. Our sovereign God is not only in control of the broad sweep of human history but also the minute details. In other words, God is not a passive bystander in what he knows will occur. Now, I want to make sure I'm not being too ambitious with Daniel 11. If Calvin couldn't cover it in 100 pages, I don't know that I can in 35 minutes. But I'm operating on the principle that my observations will send you back to the text when you get home for deeper study. To really get the most out of this next section, you should know the secular history behind it. And then we have to recognize the things that God is drawing our attention to within that secular history that's part of His plan for His people. Now, if you want to follow along in 
in detail with what's going on in verses 5 through 35, you should pull out your handy-dandy copy of the Cambridge history of the classical world. Because the minutia that God predicts in this section is laid out clearly for you in that secular history book. The Bible is history, not speculation. In fact, the, the theological liberals who have interpreted the book of Daniel particularly enjoy chapter 11. They say no one could have predicted this. Whoever wrote this had to write it after the events happened. No one could have recorded in this kind of detail the succession of kings in Egypt and in Syria hundreds of years before. They say it's, uh, they say it's quasi-prophecy, deliberately falsified in order to give the people of God some sort of comfort in the midst of their persecution. I call verses 5 through 35 the uncivil war. The uncivil war. The wars of northern and southern aggression. Now you're going to hear two kings mentioned in the reading of the text. The king of the south and the king of the north. Now that doesn't mean there was just one king for each. We'll go through a lot of different kings in the south and a lot of different kings in the north. The point is that the king of the south and the king of the north is simply whoever is reigning at that time. But this week, I asked Matthew to create a chart for me which helps to unlock these verses. And you guys know, you guys know how I like charts. So when, when Matthew texted his creation to me, I just felt like Mr. Miyagi on Karate Kid. Like, Daniel, son, you have, the student has surpassed the master. You are ready to succeed. Now, I'm not going to get into all the names because you would forget them and I would pronounce them incorrectly. But I do want you to see that the Seleucid dynasty was built in the north and the Ptolemaic dynasty was built in the south. And there are a series of kings, six of them, all with the name Ptolemy. The parents were not very creative in their child naming. And there were at least seven changes in monarchy in the north with a little better variety of, of names. So from verses 5 all the way down to 35 is basically a civil war between these two great powers. And God's people Israel lay geographically between them. Living in the middle of a war that will last 150 years. These two dynasties will play political ping pong with the nation of Israel the entire time. But let's just step back. Why such detail... On the Seleucid kings in Syria and the Ptolemaic kings in Egypt. Alexander the Great gets two verses and these guys get a whole chapter. You don't have to be a great historian to know that comparatively, Alexander was a much bigger cheese than all of these guys combined. And when you open up your Cambridge history of the classical world, Alexander has dozens of pages, chapters everywhere, but these guys, only a few. So what do we pull away from this? The things that are important in the eyes of the historian may not be the main focus in the eyes of God. He doesn't even blink at the power of the big cheeses of this world. He focuses on the apple of his eye, his children. And this teaches us something about how precious we are in his sight. Now, there are... (laughs) There are literally 135 minute prophecies fulfilled in this chapter. 
Now, I'm going to leave the majority of these for your personal study, but I will point out three. My new detail number one is, is found in verse 6. Notice what the text says. After some years, they shall make an alliance. And the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. Now, notice on your chart, around 250 BC, Ptolemy II, king of the south, attempted to make peace with Antiochus II, king of the north. And so how is he going to make peace? By sending his daughter, Bernice, to marry him. So marriages for political expediency were not unheard of. This was, this was sort of a truce in the civil war. Something to soothe tensions between both sides. And the plan was for Antiochus to divorce his first wife, Laodicea, and disinherit their children, which he absolutely did. Well, his now ex-wife wasn't really thrilled about it, so she murdered his new wife, then murdered all her attendants, which is what it says in the verse as well. Then she poisoned him to death. All things my wife said would happen if I ever cheated on her. Now, in, in the same year, Bernice's father died in Egypt. And he was succeeded by Bernice's brother. Notice in the text, someone from, their own from her own family who then invaded the Seleucid kingdom. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. All of this played out perfectly as it was predicted in verses 6, 7, and 8. To the minute detail. That's minute detail number one. Minute detail number two is found in verse 17. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom. And he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. Notice this. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom. Let's stop there. Antiochus the Great, now notice at the chart, we're in a different Antiochus now. Antiochus the Great gave his daughter Cleopatra. This is not the Cleopatra who married Mark Antony over 100 years later, but a different Cleopatra. So Antiochus the Great gave his daughter Cleopatra to Ptolemy V as a wife. And, and the plan was for his grown daughter to seduce the boy king of Egypt, who was 10 so that the north could control the south through her. However, his plan did not succeed. It, it did not work just as Daniel predicted here because she fell in love with the boy and turned against the father. So in verse 17 says at the end, she shall not stand on his side nor be for him. So, so it didn't work. So that's, a, that's another amazing minute detail prophecy fulfilled. And this dynastic feud continued for a very long time. Many power plays followed. Let me give you a third minute detail. Verse 21. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has been given. He shall come in without warning. That means this guy's going to come out of nowhere. And obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Now... Notice here on your chart, all scholars, without exception, liberal and conservative, see this king as referring to the evil reign of, of Epiphanes. Epiphanes. From verse 21 all the way to verse 35 is about Epiphanes. Now, he did something his predecessors could not do. You know what he did? He won the people. 
How did he win the people? Like a drug cartel wins the people. As a drug cartel amassed their empire, they will give some of their wealth to the poor people and therefore gain their allegiance. So you've got Epiphanes, he's passing out goodies. And then notice in verse 27, he's going to a meeting. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. Let's stop there. So Epiphanes and, and someone from the north sit down at a negotiating table. But as is so often the case in political conversations, they do so with hearts bent on evil. Speaking lies at the same table. Now this, this blows my mind. God knows one to two hundred years in the future, two men sitting at a table. Notice verse 30. For the ships of Kittim shall come against Epiphanes, and he shall be afraid and withdraw. It happened just like this. Just like this. Historians tell us a Roman consul drew a circle around Epiphanes and told him to decide on his movements before he stepped out of the circle. He said, if you go forward into Egypt, then Rome will be your enemy. Deeply humiliated, Epiphanes, when you're close with him, you can call him Big E. So that's what I'm calling Big E turned back. Notice the end of verse 30. Big E shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. Well, who, is, who is the Holy Covenant? Returning home, Big E passes Jerusalem and he thinks, I'll vent my anger on them. So he storms the people of God. And verses 31 and 32 predict with crazy clarity one of the darkest moments in Jewish history. The first thing Big E does is he puts guards all around the temple. He stops the sacrificial system and he halts all worship. Then he offers a vile pig to his demon god on the holy altar. He put a statue of Zeus in the holy of holies. He killed every circumcised infant hanging their babies outside of the family's homes. He is the Adolf Hitler of the Old Testament. And in the book of Maccabees, not, not a bad book, just not a Bible book. Catholics put it on the same level as the Bible. They shouldn't. It's good history, just not God history. In the uninspired book of Maccabees, it said that Epiphanes massacred 80,000 men, women, and children. And by the way, Epiphanes was the name he took for himself. It meant the God one. But his enemies called him Epimenes, which meant maniac or madman. So he thinks he's the God man, but he's he's really just a madman. Now when you step back, Big E is really just a blip on the historical map. But he plays such a large role here because of his hatred for God's people. He actually, he actually died of a punctured bowel. His body became toxic. He was taken down by the finger of God. He wanted to destroy the Jews. But God is showing you that he can't destroy the Jews because... There must be one come from this people group to save his people from their sins. So God would not let this man succeed. Our God is sovereign and omniscient and knows the future to the smallest detail. He can predict the future and not miss a beat in terms of accuracy. 
Now, notice on the chart, verses 36 through 45 are not attributed to a king. There's a reason for that. Well, who is the last king? Well, it could, it could still be referring to Biggie. Uh, there's no clear shift in the language, no clear textual symbols that we dropped him. But there are subtle indicators, like in verse 40, the mention of the time of the end. Which seems to take us to the edge of history. And in verse 42, it seems to indicate that whoever this king is will defeat Egypt. But in one of the most colorful accounts in human history, Big E was blocked from his intentions to conquer the land of the pyramids. So if this is not Big E, who is this king? John Calvin thought it was the Roman Empire. Others have suggested that it was Herod, some Muhammad. Many during the Reformation thought it was the papacy. But there is a, a wide agreement among scholars that it refers to the Antichrist. And if this is the case, then the king of the north and the king of the south in these remaining verses are now symbols of the combatants in the final war that will be waged on earth. The king of the north is the Antichrist and the king of the south, most scholars believe, represents a nation that seeks to protect God's people. Now, this is not a first order doctrine issue. So I'm going to leave it to you to decide where you fall on verses 36 through 45. Typically, I have a lot of applications. Uh, this week, I just have one. It's a rather long one. The application is this. Living through history can be very frightening. Living through history can be very frightening. One of my boys loves to hunt. He loves to catch things and kill things and eat things. He's, a, he's just a real out, outdoorsman. He's like, a, he's like Bear Grylls, but a miniature version. And obviously, he gets all that from, from me. All of you know I'm the rugged type who likes to live off the land. No. Since I have no desire to kill a tree rat and eat it, or camp out in a tent, I try to connect with my son by reading historical accounts about camping. <laughs> and, and this is one of the accounts I read this week. Tony lived in Nashville, but he drove out west to go camping in the rugged area along the Columbus River in Washington State. He walked and walked until the darkness grew so great that he had to stop and set up his tent and make a fire. He anticipated a relaxing night in the tent. But he was awakened in the night when intense winds and rain developed, whipping the tent and threatening to rip it from its pegs. With the changing wind and the pounding rain came deep, deep thunder. And after a while, Tony reasoned that the thunderous pounding was too constant to be thunder. Whatever it was, it was just as powerful as thunder, shaking the ground and dropping a resonating boom all around. Tony grew frightened. He's hearing sounds he's never heard before. Camping in a land he's never walked before. His mind raced. Was it an earthquake? Was it a mudslide? What was this storm doing? And how close was he to the danger? Every new crash was a cause for fresh fear. There was no peace of mind, no sleep for the body that night. 
It was not until daybreak did Tony discover the cause of the thundering that had given him such fright. Great trees, many feet in diameter, were being cut down systematically one by one by a lumber company. And then they floated them downriver to a lumber mill. The trees falling and crashing into one another in the water created the frightening sound. All it took for Tony to be calmed was for him to see by the light of day that the thunderous sounds were bounded by the shores of the river. Their great power had clear limits. And knowing that allowed him to sleep well the next night in his tent. The next night, the thunder that shook the earth still came. But knowing its limits gave Tony the peace he needed to rest. You do realize in the context of this book that Daniel is frightened. He's frightened because the great logs of empires are clashing in the river of human history. God gives Daniel this vision in chapter 11 to reassure him that they are kept within the shores of God's purposes. And God gave you this vision for the same purpose. All around you may seem chaotic. You may be hearing sounds you've never heard before. You may be going through, through wild things and conjuring up wild possibilities of what could happen next. You may have real questions about what's really behind the disruption. Sleep may be fleeing from you. And every new crash is a cause for fresh fear. Dear friend, do not forget. The great logs of COVID-19, racism, anarchy, political agendas... The great logs of cancer and heartbreak are all within the shores of God's purposes. Dear church, rest well in your tent tonight. The light of God's word has relieved your fear. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.